1: feeding the magpies with some crusts of old bread, when an Aboriginal man approached us. I was used to seeing black people as nearly half the Walgut population was Aboriginal, but he was blacker than anyone I'd ever seen. Indeed, he was so black, he was almost purple. As he came closer, I could see he was wearing some kind of traditional dress with a loincloth, an animal skin cloak and body paint on his bare chest. He was also holding a spear. G'day, he said. G'day, I said back. He then squatted down. Are you new in town? Good to see more blackfellas here. I was puzzled. We're just passing through. But we're not blackfellas. We're from Sydney. He looked amused. Right enough, your black fella. Do you honestly not know that I could tell as soon as I saw you and your baby too? No, I've always had darker skin, I said. I don't know who my parents are, but I may be Italian or Irish or had a black American dad or aboriginal, he said, finishing my sentence for me. He laughed, showing a full set of dazzling white teeth. Well, good luck. Let those magpies look out for you and see you around. With that, he stood up and loped off into the bush.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today, I'm talking to Diane O'Brien, or Auntie Di. Auntie Di was born in country, New South Wales, in the 1940s, but immediately taken from her Aboriginal mother. Raised in the era of the White Australia policy, She grew up believing her Irish adoptive mother, Val, was her birth mother. Daughter of the River Country is a remarkable memoir of abuse, survival and ultimately hope. So, Auntie Di, this is a really amazing story. Why did you decide to tell your story?
2: Uh, For my children. I wanted to um, leave something behind for the children. The kids didn't want to worry about it. They said, Mum, we only really want to know about you. We don't want to know what's behind you. And I said, well, I do want to give it to you so you can hand it down to the next generation and then you know where you come from. And plus to help other people, um, you know, like go through the drug and alcohol, the domestic violence. Um, In my day, there was nowhere to run, but in today's society, They've got so many places to go and they don't have to put up with it. You know, in my day, we I had to put up with it because I had nowhere to go. Um, I was only thinking this the other day, that um, some of them hidings that I got, I think made me stronger and made me uh, realise what life was about because I used to think it was a really good life and I'd live happy ever after. <laughs> but it was opposite. So I think out of that, I did get stronger, uh, aware of people that do con people up. I learned to lesson.
0: I want to take you back for a moment to Parramatta Girls Home. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but it's a really important part of the story. I wondered how you managed to get through that period in your life. What kept you going?
2: Um, well, I've um, it opened my eyes because when my mother was alive I had a good life and then she used the joke with me when I was naughty and say I'd end up in Parramatta Girls Home but I would never believe it until she died and then when I went into the home yeah it opened my eyes and I could see you know the struggle of other girls and what happened to them um I was you know lucky I didn't get raped but I got uh put in the dungeons and I got hit in the face with the the officer's keys, uh, the way we slept on a little mattress like that um, in the dormitory, locked in a room with a lot of children, um, no exercise. We were fed breakfast, dinner and tea in this room and then let out to go up to the dormitory where we slept. But some people ended up going to drugs and, um, and drinking and so... I didn't want to put myself in a negative place.
0: After your mother, Val, died, there's a moment in your story when you had to appear in Parramatta Court and your foster father said to the judge, actually, I'd like to disown her. And the judge replied, Mr Westman, you cannot disown an adopted child. Tell me about that moment. How did you feel when you heard those words?
2: I felt I didn't belong in the end after mum died, but when... The judge said that to Dad. i just done five steps back and I ran out the side door. But I got caught. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I couldn't believe it. And then I said to my father, well, who's my real mother? And he said, oh, some bloody wog. And that, that was the end of that. And I must say, when I got picked up, I had this pink pretty dress on and I had that on for a week. They didn't even let me change the clothes or anything. You know, I had to go to court in this bloody pretty dress. <laughs> and it was all yuck and dirty because they put me in the cells. So that was an experience on its own, you know, just being locked up.
0: And your first baby, Debbie. Yes. Uh, how did you manage to keep her when, when at a time when babies were routinely fostered out and, and mothers were actually coerced or even tricked into letting the babies go how did you manage to keep baby debbie
2: well um we were told what would happen to us at um crown street Uh, they would come around and put a pillow on our chest and tell us to sign papers for anesthetic but these were adopted papers so when some girls come back to my e they tell us so when they did it to me i just screamed out that i was keeping the baby um, and I didn't sign any papers. So when I did go back to MyE, the matron did try to tell me I was going to lose her if I didn't marry. MyE is a hostel for um, wayward mothers and um, kids that were adopted out and they ended up coming back. It was a hostel for children.
0: Did you think of yourself as a wayward mother no, at the time? no. How did you think of yourself right there and then?
2: Well, I felt lost and betrayed and um, trapped. And, yeah, I'm having. when I found out I was pregnant, it was like my mother was coming back. I lost my mum and this was her. So Debbie was my mother to me. This is what mum gave me, so I'm keeping her.
0: One thing that comes through really strongly in the book is your ability to hold your temper and to bide your time and to stand up for yourself.
2: I think all the hidings I got and I start to fight back. I was always um, straightforward. So when I was a kid, even with mum, mum used to tell me not to say things. But if somebody said something nasty, I'd always say something back. Um, But I think... Like I said, them first two men, how they flogged me, I learned not to fight back because I got worse. So say Colin was giving me a hiding, and then if I hit him, then I got worse because he thought a woman's getting over the top of him. So I had to learn. So I had to learn to um, manipulate, whatever you call the word, um, yeah, and to be tricky.
0: You seem to also have acquired this really valuable skill of patience in order to look to the future. Where did that come from?
2: I think it comes from my adopted mother because she was very patient and she taught me a lot of stuff. You know, she taught me not to, well, don't back answer and know what you say before you say it. Um, but I'm pretty straightforward.
0: You started to discover who you were. And there's this name, Esme Violet Gibson. What did you feel when you first heard that name?
2: It was a different name. I was under um, Diane Westman and then all of a sudden I was Caroline Manns and then I was Caroline um, Grosvenor. So when I did find my real mother, I did ask her about all this and she said that they were my first cousins. But... um, yeah, so I was more confused because I had so many different names.
0: And and what happened when you first met your birth mother?
2: Oh, not very much. We went to a cafe in uh, Parramatta and it was just like having a cup of tea with a friend. She said she recognised me anywhere know, um, she knew I'd come looking for her. But um, the relationship was gone already because I had such a good life with my mother. Um, this lady was a nice lady, but not like my mother.
0: So you weren't really able to connect with her?
2: No, because um later on in the book, as you see, she took more notice of her other grandchildren and great grandchildren than she did of mine. And I did ask her, was she ashamed of being black? And she said, No, no, I don't no, I'm proud of you.
0: And what did you think when you found out that actually your birth mother had lived almost around the corner from you in Grand?
2: Yes. I had a sort of insight that she was close and I used to have those feelings that I did belong to a family with five sisters um, when I used to do them walks down the river and that. You know, I knew I started to feel like mum was my grandmother and dad was my real dad. And that's why it was a big shock about Dad because he was like he looked like me or I looked like him. Yeah.
0: And I think a lot of that comes out towards the end of the book, and you you meet some of your half sisters and you immediately recognise them, and you've discovered at a point that you are were a Yorta Yorta woman. Yes. What difference did that make to your life to just make that Um, discovery?
2: Yeah, great difference. Um. I discovered that when I was about 32, um, that we were Aboriginal by um, a guy called Donnie Williams come to our house and he told me that my kids were Aboriginal. I said, no, we're not. We could be Italian, Mortees. And um, anyway, he come back and told me, oh, yeah, you're from the William Cooper's great-granddaughter. Um, then he linked me on to Link Peter Reed, and Coral Edwards.
0: I want to talk about William Cooper in a minute, but how did discovering that you were a Yorta Yorta woman change your life and how did it affect your self-esteem?
2: It made me proud to be Aboriginal. Um, We found I was settled because we found out, yeah, I am Aboriginal. I no longer say I'm Heinz Variety, as I used to say.
0: What does that mean, Heinz Variety?
2: Yeah, yeah. I used to always say to people, "What, what?" They used to say, "What have you got in your Italian Mortese, no Heinz variety?" I don't know, <laughs> and um, we're what we are. Um. So, yes, I was very proud, and then um, when Peter Reed told me William Cooper was my great grandfather, that was even prouder. You know.
0: and I suppose that's when you started to make a few connections in your life, yeah. and you finally got to visit. Kamarganja. What did you expect to find there, and what did you find there?
2: Well, uh, my great um, uncle, Uncle Emmanuel, he took us back to the mission. We moved to Shepparton to get work, and then me and um, Cindy, and me, me and Cindy moved to the, uh, Shepparton for work. And then my great aunties come out to give me a job on the mission. And I just wanted to learn the stories and the culture. So I wanted to take my kids back to learn their culture and see what it's like to live on a mission, get educated about mainly their culture.
0: And were you able to do that? Were your children able to connect back to your ancestors?
2: Some. um, Some of the kids did, but some of them didn't really want to worry about it. But um, my two daughters connected, and then when I got the job there, well, the changes I made, then my family was accepted.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about William Cooper? What was his role?
2: His role, he was a great man. I mean, he walked for miles and miles and miles with a lousy little sixpence in his pocket, and he um, educated our people, not only being a Christian man, but... um, To vote, vote for the rights of Aboriginal people. Um, The first human rights fellow.
0: There's another relative of yours, Douglas Nichols, who's had a really important role in the advancement of Aboriginal people. What was his role and how was he related to you?
2: He's my great uncle. Um, I I never can fit all the family tree into connection, but he was um, he used to give blankets out to our people, and he was another man that spoke on behalf of our um, tribes and clans.
0: There's also um, another issue, another thing you explore, which is the Aboriginal freedom riders in the early 1960s. How did you come across them, and how did it change the way you thought about yourself?
2: How I felt about myself was being a part of something that made change, and we, we still haven't changed. You know, it was a lot of work, a lot of uh, peaceful marching. Um, even though it got violent.
0: I want to talk about your work at Mingaletta Local Aboriginal Corporation. Yes. Uh, and you're the chair. Auntie yes. Di is the chair. Um, and you actually, in 2017, were awarded the New South Wales Grandparent of the Year. Yes. What? Tell me about your work at Mingleetta. What do you do there?
2: Well, at Mingleetta, I um, I do the work of a CEO. But we work with the community on different programs. We work with all the Aboriginal services and non-Aboriginal services. And we run health and wellbeing programs and mental health, suicide prevention. We've got groups like men's groups, women's groups. Um, we've got domestic violence groups. So we've got a heap of health and wellbeing programs plus activities for the kids. So we um, sometimes I do cultural awareness, every um, last Thursday of the month. And then we have story time because we're all volunteers here. No one gets paid for anything. We do a lot with them on cancelling and that. And what we haven't got, we refer on to <laughs> other services on the Central Coast.
0: So, Aunty Do, you've got a lot of life experience, a lot of ups and downs in your life. Do you think all of that experience has, has it helped you in the work that you do now?
2: I get paid in watching people change their life. You know, it just gives me great hope to see people coming in that are down and out and ready to commit suicide and then walk away from here after a couple of months and they get a job and they get a home. And, you know, that the look on their face of that gratitude, that's my pay. You know, because my kids are always going mad about, oh, I, spend, I should sleep down here because I spend more time down here. But it's... And I've been helping people since I was nineteen, twenty. you know. So it's good to look back and see them people. And some write me a letter and say if it weren't for me, they wouldn't have this or that. And that is my pay.
0: And you mentioned a moment ago that you've got a huge family tree, so big that you don't even really know how big it is or how to trace it. And I also gather that you love children. I love kids.
2: Yeah, yeah. Kids are all the time around me. Uh, I get cranky at them sometimes, but I love them. Yeah, and family's important to me because I think it's because I never had it, and I've always just been. I want a family that knows their history, you know, and that know where they come from.
0: Does that give you a lot of satisfaction too?
2: Yes, teaching them old ways, teaching them their culture. Um. They teach me some new ways too, (laughs) that it's okay in my time but not okay in this time. It's good to watch them grow. I wanted to um, grow up and be a secretary in an office when I started but it didn't end that way. If mum was still alive, it might have been a bit different. But I'd always been strong. I always look back and say, Ah, oh, what's the next bloody challenge I've got to do?
0: <laughs> well, we <laughs> up
2: there looking at me all the time, giving me more challenges, and I think, wow.
0: <laughs> you seem to be the kind of person who meets those challenges at every opportunity.
2: I hope so. Yeah, I try.
0: I've been talking to Diane O'Brien, Auntie Di, about her book, Daughter of the River Country. It's published by Echo and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.